Well, good morning. Hope y'all are good and excited and awake on this Sunday morning. You look perky. I'm sure you're excited to be here. So uh, I'm excited. We're starting a new series today. It's just going to be two weeks. It's called Counterfeit. And what we're looking at um, during this series is really how quickly a counterfeit system of religion can slip into the church, um, God's church, the big C church, how we can quickly go from walking with God and walking and focusing in on uh, our relationship with Jesus through faith um, and begin to add things to our plate, not because we are motivated by the love of God and compelled to go and do these things because of the relationship and the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, but because we begin to see these things that we do as the point. We see it as uh, the, the end. We see it as uh, what we're supposed to be about. And um, I hope that the next two weeks and really for uh, the rest of our lives, that we can see that there's much more to it than that, that uh, we miss the point if we're just about uh, doing and are never focused in on just being with Christ and realizing that he is with us, that he's living in us and walking with us. Um, so this morning, I want to spend uh, a little bit of time just going through scripture with you. I want to read several different scriptures, um, and in these scriptures that we're going to cover about probably close to 40 years, okay? Um, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 20, if you want to turn there, and then we're going to progress through the New Testament until finally we're going to end up at Revelation chapter 2, um, where we're looking at the church in Ephesus, and the reason I want to cover all this time and all these years is because I want you to see that there is somewhat of a constant theme that runs through these different uh, scriptures at different times um, that are written by different men, yet there's one theme that seems to be consistent with them and something that they're trying to guard and something that they're trying to protect throughout Scripture. It's not limited to these Scriptures. Many of the letters that you read uh, in the Bible, uh, they're written uh, for the same purpose. Um, we're going to look today, as we begin in Acts 19, at how the early church, the early church's faithful teachers. We're going to look at how the apostles, uh, whether it's the apostle Paul or the apostle John, fought so hard to maintain the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to not let it become polluted or perverted to the point where it takes faith plus anything else to bring us to Christ or faith plus anything else to keep us walking with Christ. And so that's a large part of the battle in all of the letters that are written in the New Testament is the preservation of the gospel and keeping people from falling into a religious deception. Um, it's very easy. Uh, the, the most sure thing about religion and this religious system is that as soon as we come to faith in Christ, the most sure thing I have seen is that immediately this religious system of doing begins to work itself in and begins to take over this ability for us just to be in relationship with God. It's also very sneaky. It comes in and it wraps its uh, really arms and hands around us to squeeze out the life of Christ and it does it in such a sneaky way that it's often hard to even detect that it's happening. And so we're going to look at this, and Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to begin. I want to read to you um, Acts 20, 25 through 31. At this point, Paul is nearing the end of his life. He is about to head back to Jerusalem. Um, he's going to end up not too long from now in Rome, um, but he's addressing the Ephesian elders. It was a church in Ephesus that Paul uh, founded earlier, and he is now addressing the elders as he's about to leave them, knowing that they 
uh, will not see him again. And so he's addressing them beginning there in Acts 20, and we're going to pick up in 25 to these Ephesian elders, and we're going to be looking at the church in Ephesus all the way through to Revelation chapter 2. It says in Acts 25, he says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that For three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And so Paul writes or speaks this to them. We read it as Luke has written it. And this happened somewhere near, probably a little before um, 60 AD, so 60-ish AD. All right, let's fast forward now a little ways to where... Paul is writing a letter back to the Ephesians. This letter took place sometime around 60 to 62 AD. We know that Paul wrote this to them. We're going to pick up in Ephesians 3 verse 14 and read through verse 21 as he prays for the Ephesians. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people, listen, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So within a couple of years or so, three, four years, um, we see that, that Paul is writing this letter to them. He's praying for them, that they will continue to grow, that together they will continue to recognize the depth of God's love for them. He knows that there are false teachers who've come in. Ephesus was one of the largest cities in that area. It was a huge city for that time, and he knows that there are a lot of people who do works of magic. He knows that there's a ton of idol worship that goes on. He knows that there is a significant pull against the Ephesians to remain true to the faith. And so we see him saying this, knowing this in Acts chapter 20, that these people are coming. We see him in Ephesians still trying to get them, make sure that they have not strayed from what they need to be focused on, that they need to be growing in, which is their faith in Jesus, being rooted and established in love, walking in his power. And so he's trying to get them to see that You don't need to turn from this. This is my prayer for you. I want this for you. And so Paul writes this back to them. Shortly after that, Paul has now sent Timothy to Ephesus. Timothy has been there. um, And and he's, he's writing back to Timothy. Timothy is there pretty well pastoring Ephesus, the church there in Ephesus. And so Paul goes and writes to Timothy, encouraging him and commanding and challenging him to do some things. And let's pick up in verse uh, three of the first chapter. It says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. 
The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If you look at verse 10, he says, or I'm sorry, look at verse, or 2 Timothy. Flip over one or two pages in your Bible, depending on how thick your study Bible is. But 1 Timothy, written around 62 AD, so we've come out of the end of the, 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 the late 50s AD. We've come into the early 60s AD. Now we're to about 64 AD, where we have 2 Timothy um, being written. Paul's still writing to Timothy in Ephesus as he is faced with the challenges of preserving the gospel and keeping people focused in on faith and trusting in Christ, walking in his love, walking in the power of the Spirit. He writes to him. We're going to pick up in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, amen, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And listen, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people. And in that, we see the epitome of a religious system. It is able to remain about us. Um, we don't have anything to give because we remain empty in love. And so we begin to try to grab and take and get what we need rather than being full of God and his power so we have something we want to give. If you look on down at verse 10, you see a final charge to Timothy. Paul, his life is literally, it is not far from coming to an end. And these are his last words to a very good friend and fellow uh, warrior, I guess, in the faith. He says in verse 10, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, listen, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. In other words, don't go after these false teachings. Don't be deceived by something that may sound good. And now, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so now we're leaving about 64 AD, and we're going to skip forward to the Apostle John. We're jumping here several years, um, probably between 85, 90 AD. So we're jumping ahead um, probably 20, 25 years to the Apostle John. Now, John was run out of Jerusalem around uh, 70 AD or so, and he went to Ephesus. He went to Ephesus. It makes sense. It was the largest city that he could probably have the most impact as the last living apostle of Jesus. And so he goes to Ephesus. He's spending time there. He writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from that area of the church in Ephesus. He's writing it to other churches or other people in that area in each of these three letters. In 1 John, I want us to read verses 1 through 3. It says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Again, he's dealing with deception, deceptive teaching, idolatry. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This is one of the biggest things he was dealing with is that Jesus People were saying that he had not come in the flesh. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the picture, or this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already 
in the world. And so John's recognizing what's happening. He's recognizing the pull of this religious system. He sees it, but he also sees through it. And he realizes that this is not just the work of man. Behind the work of man is the work of Satan. And so what he's saying is they are trying to pull you away from the life of Christ, faith in Christ, the truth of the gospel. And so there's this battle that is raging, not just physically for these Ephesians as they are persecuted, but also it's raging spiritually and in the spiritual realm. If you look on there in 2 John 4, there's only one chapter there, so verse 4. It says, it has given me great joy, and this is Paul or John writing to a friend. It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And so he's dealing again with these false teachers who are moving them away from faith. And he's moving, trying to keep them in faith, in truth, in love, in the power of the spirit that comes by faith and trust in the promises of God. Look at John, third, or third John, verse five. He says, dear friend, you are faithful. He's writing to uh, a man named Gaius. You are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for, their, for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrophus who loves to be first will not welcome us so when I come I will call attention to what he is doing spreading malicious nonsense about us not satisfied with that he even refuses to welcome other believers he also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church and so there is a slander of the apostles teaching and this deception that is still brewing in the churches in and around Ephesus in that area. And finally, we come to the scripture, the last scripture in Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation 1, John has had this great revelation of Jesus. I want you to understand what he has seen or at least somewhat feel the magnitude of what he has seen. This is John, uh, the beloved disciple, as um, he writes about himself. Um, And He's the one who put his head upon Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He was probably the one that was the closest to Jesus throughout his life. And yet when he has this vision of Jesus and he begins to see Jesus in his glory, um, the Bible says he fell on his face as though he were dead. And so I want you to see the magnitude of what John has seen. He has seen Jesus glorified. It is something that all at once was magnificent and terrifying, and, and he recognizes this. He falls on his face as though he were dead. Jesus walks up, places his hand on him, and says, do not be afraid. And so John has this revelation of Jesus. The whole book of Revelation is about Jesus revealing more of himself. It is the revelation of who he is, how he sees his churches, and the fact that he is with his churches. And so when we we come to Revelation chapter 2, John is coming out of having seen this. He's hearing the voice of Christ speaking to him. We're somewhere around 95 AD, so now we've gone from the late 50s AD all the way to 95 AD. Each of the letters we've read are all dealing with false teaching. They're all pointing us back to love and faith in Christ, and they're all telling us that This is going to be a big issue that wolves will come in and try to devour the life that God desires to give us. And he's saying they will pull you away. It is sneaky. It is crafty. It is something you've got to be on your guard against. And so we come here now, Revelation written here in 95 AD, probably about five years have passed since the writing of 3 John. And it is amazing, guys, 
when we look at Acts 20 all the way to 3 John, what we're about to find five years after John has probably departed from Ephesus, or the maximum time would have been five years. And so we know it's not been more than that. Listen to what Jesus has to say to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen, repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And so we come to this um, really within five years of John's departure, his going to the island of Patmos. He's there now, and already Jesus is coming and, and telling him to write back to the church in Ephesus and six other churches. He begins with Ephesus. I don't believe it's coincidence. It was the largest church. He's dealing with love for himself and them loving him, um, him loving them. He's trying to rekindle this devotion and this love that had existed before. And so he comes to the church in Ephesus and the very thing that Paul had been telling them in Acts 20, the very thing that he was warning them about when he wrote in Ephes to Ephesus um, in Ephesians and told them, grow in your love and your faith. The thing he told Timothy he was going to have to battle, the thing that John encouraged so much in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, um, when we get to the book of Revelation, they are all already being um, corrected because they've gotten away from this. And I, I want you to see that. And that's a lot of scripture, but scripture's good. It's, it's, we read it's God breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and training and correcting. But we have to see in this how quickly this religious system comes in. We have to see in this how quickly these Ephesians had to be corrected because of the pull of this religious system, this false teaching, these magic works, these idol-worshiping people were pulling them away. And I want you to see that today. I want to just pray real quick and ask God that he would speak to our hearts as, and really unveil our hearts in this system that many of us are entrenched in and help us to see him and have a revelation of who he is, maybe for the first time or once again. So let's pray. God, thank you for your work in our lives and that you have revealed yourself, Lord, to us in the person of Jesus. You've given us your word so that we can see clearly and have truth. And God, I pray that you would just speak to us God, let your scripture be powerful as we know it is and unveil our hearts and open our blind eyes and give us ears to hear and give us, God, just an unwillingness to settle for less than a relationship with you, Lord. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I feel like you've probably been in a situation before where you have done the right thing, but you didn't do it for the right reason. Anybody been there, right? You can raise your hand. It's okay. Um, you've all done this. So, um, but, but you have. It's maybe been at work. It's maybe been because your parents made you. It might have been because a coach made you or a boss made you or somebody told you this is what you have to do. Or it was just something that needed to be done. You had to do it, so you went and did it. And, and so there's always times in life, it seems, where we just have to do things because that's what needs to be done. That's what we're, we know we have to do. But it doesn't mean we do it for the right reason. 
I believe that's a picture of what we see in Revelation chapter 2 is that this is a church in Ephesus that is very busy. Um, They're about the church business. They're about being busy for Christ. And yet Jesus comes to them and he tells them that they are missing the point, that you're missing the reason for all of this. You're missing um, the the whole point of of the, the things you've endured. Now you're just being busy and he commends them for some things. But, but he commends them for working hard, being busy. He says, you're doing these things and you're doing the right stuff. He says, you're getting the right things done. And man, you look like the model church. He said, you've held on to the truth, even in the face of persecution and people trying to pull you to other gospels, and which are not gospels, that, that you, you recognize this. You recognize the truth. You've held on to the truth and you have knowledge of the truth and you're doing the right things and you've even endured. He's saying, look, you have persevered, you've pushed through, you've gone on in the face of all the stuff and all the the difficulties, you've kept going. You've buckled down and you kept going. And it looks like the model church, right? I mean, it looks like they've got it all together. On the outside, I mean, they're busy. They know the truth. They probably have meetings where they talk about the truth. They probably have grown in their understanding of theology or the study of God. But they're missing the points. They've endured. They've stuck it out. They've persevered, but they're missing the points. It looks like the model church, but it's not. And what I want you to see today is they're dealing with, as Jesus is dealing with the church in Ephesus and this deception in Ephesus that is taking place that you just need to be about doing the right things. Just do and just do. And and if you'll just work and you'll just know truth and you don't necessarily apply truth or realize that that truth is bringing you to a reconciled relationship with Jesus, if you'll just, if you think it's just about that or you think it's just about coming to a place where you make it to the other side he's like you're missing the point you're missing the joy of the journey with Jesus you're missing what eternal life is really about which is knowing God he's saying you're missing everything and I find us I find me I find the church today in that place where we miss the point we have a lot of busyness, we have a lot of church business, but what is the motivation behind it? Why are we so busy, some of us? Why are we so burned out, some of us? Why are we so anti-church, many people? I believe it's because we've only given people things to do, not someone to know. If we don't, and you've heard me say this many times the last few weeks, if we don't get our knowing Jesus before our doing, it is backwards and we're still left empty. But the religious system comes in and We feel good if I'm just doing the right thing all the while my heart is not in the right place. I'm not motivated by love. I'm not motivated by the Spirit. I'm not walking with Jesus. I just know the system told me do this. That's what I know. I understand systematic theology, but I don't know the one that it's pointing me to. We can talk about the cross and atonement. We can talk about all these things, but we don't enjoy what the atonement has brought us. We don't enjoy the life that God's given us. We don't walk in the power of the Spirit. We don't walk in the truth of his love. We don't realize the glory of God that is in Christ. And many of us are in that place because we've never really tasted the goodness of God. We just walk through a system that tells me that if I do these things, I'll be okay. And that's not okay. It's missing the whole point. 
The point is not living a religious life a point apart from Christ. A religious life apart from Jesus is pointless. If eternal life is to know God and we come into the knowledge of who he is and we're walking with him, eternal life doesn't start when I'm dead. It starts at the moment that I come into relationship with Jesus. What we need to realize is that is the point. Life with Christ. Do we do? Absolutely. But why? Because I'm walking in his love. I'm walking in his power. I'm walking in the spirit. Do I obey? Absolutely. First John talks so much about obedience, but you cannot fully love God with your whole heart, with all of your being, because you've seen his glory and you've seen what he's done for you. You cannot fully love God and reject him at the same time by going your own way. It's impossible. It is a spiritual impossibility to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and at the same time walk away from him. That doesn't even make sense logically. And so he's rebuking them because you're doing a lot of good stuff. You're just putting your head down and plowing like a mule. But guess what? You forgot me. And this is where the church is today, guys. This is why there's no life in the church. As soon as a church becomes an unloving church, it loses the light of the gospel. It loses. It's why Jesus tells them, if you don't repent of this, if you don't come back to me in this devotion and this love, he's saying, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place and In other words, the lampstand, it represented that church in Ephesus. He's saying, if you don't repent, if you don't come back to me, if this devotion and this love is not reestablished, I'm coming and I'm going to take the lampstand away. Now, you might have a building that's maintained. You might have Bible studies. You might have small groups. You might have Sunday worship. But once I take the light of the Holy Spirit out of your church, it's nothing but a dead organization that can cannot produce what God wants to produce in and through it. And that's what he's saying. Look, we can have walls and we can have sheetrock and we can have lights and we can have sound, but if we are void of the power of the Holy Spirit, we only have a form of godliness without the power. If we are void of love, how can we possibly say that we are Christ-like and giving people an understanding of who he is? We are liars. So Jesus is calling this out. He's, listen, he probably wasn't yelling at them like I am. It is a call back. It is a good thing. Jesus is saying, listen, come back to me. Don't just be busy about church business and church life and another committee and another thing and another study and another that doesn't lead you closer to me. Walk with me. Come to me when you are heavy laden and burdened and I'll give you rest for your soul. Jesus didn't say, come to me, you who are heavy, you're heavy laden, you are burdened, and I'm going to give you something else to do. Are we going to do? Absolutely. But listen, doing right, what is right with the wrong heart is sin. That's what he's saying. Why would he call them to repentance What do you repent of? You repent of sin going the wrong direction. He's saying, look, you're you're living and doing all the right stuff, but you've forsaken me. You need to repent. It's the same thing he calls us to. 
It's the same thing we are going to wrestle with and the spirit of God inside of us who are Christians is going to fight against every day of our life as everything around us and now even in the church system tells us it's about what we do first and not who we are and whose we are. And it gets reinforced on a daily basis, this system of acceptance and achievement and I got to get it done or else I'm going to be rejected. Jesus is just saying, why don't you come sit at my feet for a minute? Why don't you come be with me? Why don't you let me walk with you through your day? Instead of me existing as some cosmic being that you just cry out to when you finally get to the point that you realize I can't do it on my own and the thing I want you to see today I don't care how successful you've been I don't care how good things are going I don't care how great things seem you cannot have life apart from him if we're going to have life it comes through us walking with him Moment by moment, not in momentary mental encounters that we just schedule on our day planner. See, Jesus' greatest desire for the Ephesians and for us and for every church that's ever existed is not that they would be consumed with church business or church busyness. It is that they would be consumed with him. Because when we are consumed with God, God is consuming us. We will become the church that he desires for us to become. We will walk in love. We will receive love and reciprocate it back to God and then pass it on to other people. Our motivation is not to be accepted. Our motivation is our relationship of love and the power of the spirit that's working in us because I'm connected here. It's a huge difference. It's very sneaky and it's very subtle. So he tells them, come back to love. Fall back in love with me, right? (laughs) How do you even do that? I mean, how do I do that? How do I just go, okay, right now I realize I'm not really loving God. How do I love God? How do I now change that? And okay, I'm just going to, I love you, God. Some of that is a choice. It's agape love. It's a love of choice, absolutely. But I I think it goes back again to the two issues we see in Revelation 1 and 2. I think if we begin to look, we see that it's not a coincidence that John has the revelation of Christ before he writes to the churches. I also don't think it's coincidence that the first issue that's dealt with is love because everything else is a manifestation of the love of God in us. I don't think those two things are coincidence. And in dealing with a loss, listen, this is important, and if you don't get anything, if you checked out about 2 Timothy 3, check back in real quick. Because in dealing with love in the Ephesus church, with God and with each other, we see the problem, okay? We see the problem. But in dealing, as John does in Revelation chapter 1, with seeing Jesus' glory, we see the solution, all right? So in Revelation 2, and we deal with all the deceptions that are going on in these seven churches that he's going to write to. We get to Ephesus. He's dealing with love. When we look at a loss of love for God and this devotion to Christ, this walking in love with him, what we begin to see is that that is the problem. What I want you to see is that 
We can see the problem in a loss of love in a religious system. I want you to see, though, that seeing God's glory and the glory of Christ is the solution to that problem. So that we do what Jesus tells them to do and we can begin to see again why I loved him in the first place. We can begin to recognize what I've walked away from. And so I'm able once again to come to a place where I see what I'm missing and I recognize how far I've fallen and strayed from the actual point of Jesus dying on a cross and being raised to life and sending his spirit is I finally see what I've walked away from and what I'm missing. And Jesus tells them this. He says, consider in verse five, how far you've fallen. What's he telling them? He's saying, remember, remember, think back. Don't forget where we were. Don't forget the love, the power of grace. Don't forget to look at the cross. Don't forget daily to hit your knees, to think about me on the cross shedding perfect blood for the forgiveness of your sin. Don't forget and not think about me taking God's wrath for you, for your sin, so you wouldn't have to. Don't forget to think about me consistently and moment by moment as you walk through your day knowing that I stand with you, knowing that if I went through all the hell, literally, that I went through for you then, that I will not leave you nor forsake you today. If you'll think about these things, if you'll remember that I was condemned so that you could be set free, if you'll remember that I became dirty so that you could become clean, if you'll remember and you'll just see the cross, you'll just see Jesus, if you'll see the love in his eyes, if you'll see the passion in his heart, then all of a sudden up in you begins to well in you the love of God. How can we not look? And I'm as guilty as every one of you for forgetting, for not remembering, for not walking. I get busy with church business and I'm the pastor and yet there's so much junk that goes on in the church that I can go from 7.30 to 6 when I leave and I can sit there and not have one thought about Jesus on the cross. I can sit there and how are we going to work out this issue? How are we going to work out that issue? How are we going to keep them from doing that? How are we going to keep them doing that? And I can sit there and I can forget in my own relationship with God what he's done for me, who he is, and the glory that I see when I look to the risen son seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for my sin. He says, repent. He says, remember. 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 Don't think about how far you've fallen. Think about what it was. And come back. It's the most amazing thing you can see in Scripture is that as many times as we were the ones and have been the ones who spat on Him, who hit him, punched him, crucified, drove the nails through his hands. He willingly laid his hands out on the cross to receive the nails for you and for me. And when he opened up his arms, he opened up a way for us to always be able to come back so that that door never closes. That opportunity is still there so that I can walk away from this empty place in life of just doing and trying to be good. And I can come into a place of a living relationship with God. He willingly laid down his life. No one could take it from him. And he says, resume. He 
tells them, do the things you did at first. Do the things you did at first. Here's the thing, what they are doing and what they've been doing, it may not look a whole lot different than what they're about to begin doing again. But the life and the joy, the love and the grace, even for those who are coming against them begins to change. Why? Because they're walking in relationship with God, consistently receiving His love, coming back to Him time and time again when they begin to be pulled away, realizing that love and repentance is not driven out of an emotion that I just feel really bad I want to get rid of this it's driven by the truth that says when I'm walking away I can see the truth and the grace of God and I'm going to come back there's no way that if I listen that if I am in Christ I am a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit that I can look into the eyes of Jesus, give him the middle finger and just keep walking with my back to him. It is impossible. So what do we do? We take the words of Jesus. We remember, we repent, we come back and we resume. We let our doing flow out of our knowing, out of our being with Christ. We don't let a religious system come in and hijack our life where I'm just focused on busyness and doing. And I forget the point of the Bible is a reconciled world to the God who created it. And so this is what I want you to do from now until the day you die. I want you to remember. I want you to remember. Do I want you to pray? Absolutely. Do I want you to read scripture? Absolutely. Do I want you to do the things that Christ wants us to do and live a life worthy of Christ? 100%. Absolutely. But if we are going to do that in the life and love that God wants us to do it, we are going to have to consistently remember and consistently turn and consistently come to Him. We've got to realize these revelations and the glory of God that He shows us in Scripture from beginning to end. When you read Scripture, I want you to answer four questions. This is not just something to do. If you just do this, it's not going to help you. But if you, with eyes that can hear and hearts of flesh and not of stone and ears that can hear and eyes that can see, come to Scripture and rather than it being something you do, come to it for something to see. Look at Scripture and Ask the question, who is God? Who does Scripture reveal Him to be? From Genesis 1, He shows us His power and creation. And all the way through Scripture is a progressive revelation of who He is. Question 2, who am I? Who does the Bible show me I am? From even from Adam and the sin that took place to Cain murdering Abel all the way through the Tower of Babel in the beginning of this religious system, all the way through Scripture with the stiff-necked Israelites, all the way through the, the, even King David and Solomon and all the heroes that we hold so high and we see their stubbornness and sinfulness and wandering ways. And we see that that is us, that we're the same as them that every human that's ever been on the face of the earth has created. And when we come into this world because of sin, we're broken and we see that. The third thing is to see in Scripture what God has done. See, where we have the advantage is we look back in hindsight, we see everything through the cross. And I see that that's where my brokenness is healed. I see that that's where God's love is most clearly seen. I see that's where 
wrath and love combined on Jesus so that I could be made right with God and I see what God has done and then I read scripture and I even see who now I've become. I've become a child of God and the spirit in me when I remember causes me to cry out, Abba, Father. As I walk with him daily, remembering him, remembering what he's done, fanning into flame the Holy Spirit that's in me. And if we can, listen, if we can remember, if we've come to faith in Jesus and the Spirit is in us and we remember it fans into flame the Spirit of God. We go from empty to full, from looking to take to giving. But it's all dependent on the fullness of Christ. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you that maybe you've just been in a religious system all your life. You never come to Christ. I'll give you this opportunity as our prayer team will be down here for you to come and pray with him, to come into a relationship of simply trusting Jesus, walking in faith, not a religious system that can never do for you what it's promised it will do. I, I, I want to pray for us who've gotten into this system and it's just been about being busy with church and church business and doing and we've gotten away from being I'm going to ask that you come and you can spend some time here in prayer or you can remain at your seat and pray I'm asking for all of you to remember if you've been in that place where grace and you felt the sweetness of the release of sin in your life to remember I'm asking you to see maybe for the first time if you've ever just always just been in a religious system and you've never come into this walk of faith with God and grace and spirit and truth in your life. So I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna ask you to just listen to the Holy Spirit, remember, remember and see what the Lord has done. Taste that he's good. God, thank you for giving us the ability to remember, the ability to experience your love and grace through the power of your spirit, that we can experience life with you and in you, God. And I pray that we just look deeply into your eyes and that we would consistently remember that, that our love and our even our repentance wouldn't just be an emotionally driven thing, God, but that we would see the truth, who you are and what you've done, who we are and what we've become because of Jesus' work on the cross and that we would come to you. As you've come to us, Lord, you've given us that opportunity. Thank you, God, that you are patient that you persevere with us, God, that you made a way for us to come. We love you in Jesus' name.